We're going to continue this morning in our Big Ideas of the Bible series. And this morning we're talking about eternal security. That is the idea that eternal life is a freely offered gift, one that once God gives to us, he doesn't take away. And as I thought about the concept of eternal life and of free this week, I remembered an incident from several years ago when I was the college pastor at Grace. I got a call uh, one afternoon from a company that produced resources for churches. They were DVD sort of resources where there were sermons and seminars by well-known pastors. And, and so this, this salesperson called me and said, I would like to send you a number of these resources for free. And I said, for free, you're going to send me these resources. He said, yes, we're going to send them to you for free. And I said, so by free, you mean I won't have to pay for them. There's no charge. He goes, no, no charge. They're free. I just love helping out ministries like yours. And and I said, so I'm not signing up for like a a club, you know, like a magazine club or something where once I get them, you're going to charge me. He said, no, free. They're free. I just love to send things like this to you for free. I asked him four or five times if they were indeed free. And I finally said, okay, great. I will, I will look over the resources, see if there's anything we can use. Go ahead and send them to me. So I sent them and I got this huge stack of DVDs and uh, we began to go through them as a college ministry staff and we found some things that we enjoyed. And about three or four weeks later, I got the bill for the free materials, several hundred dollars for the free materials. So I looked at the bill and I thought there's got to be a mistake of some kind. So I called the company and I said, hey, they told me these were free. I just got a, a large bill. Uh, what's the situation? And uh, the person that I got on the phone says, well, there must have been a misunderstanding. Uh, they're not free. Uh, you actually have to pay for the resources. And I said, no, wait a second. I asked the man five times maybe, are they free? And he assured me that they were free. And she said, well, can you give me the name of the salesperson that you spoke with, with our company? And I gave her the name and she paused for a moment and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. We actually had to let that salesperson go because he was promising people things that we could not deliver. And in fact, they're not free. And if you don't want them, go ahead and box them up and ship them back to us, uh, which I did. I put them in a box, shipped them back along with the bill that I decided they could keep as well. Well, as I thought about that incident, uh, it brought to mind all of the emotions that I think many of us feel when we hear that something is free. Uh, When somebody calls and tells you they're going to send you a free gift, you always wait for the other shoe to drop, don't you? Uh, Where is the cost going to come in? Usually the cost is on the back end, right? They're going to send me something for free for now, but I will need to pay at some point in the future. Uh, That feeling that we have that things cannot be free, I think informs a lot of times the way we think about the gospel itself. So that when we talk about this concept of eternal security, we're skeptical. Uh, When we talk about the idea that God offers eternal life as an absolutely free gift, one you don't have to pay for, uh, our minds begin to think, well, somewhere there must be a cost. So surely if I don't do enough good things on the back end of receiving salvation, surely God will come in and say, 
I'm going to take it away because you were not good enough. You didn't try hard enough. Uh, Maybe if my sin exceeds a certain amount or a certain degree, God will say, I'm going to revoke that free gift. So I think even in the spiritual realm, we are skeptical of the idea of free. Uh, Because the reality is that there are men and women in the room this morning who are doubting your salvation uh, because of something you have thought or said or done. There's something in your life that causes you to say, maybe God doesn't want me anymore. Maybe what he offered as free really has a cost, and I haven't paid the cost. Uh, But as we look at the scripture and we look at the concept of eternal life over and over and over again, the scripture makes it plain to us that what God offers freely, he does not revoke. Eternal life is a free gift. It's a free gift that we cannot earn and that God never takes away. Eternal life is a free gift. We did not earn it. We cannot lose it. So that when Jesus died on a cross in our place and rose again to defeat death and sin, at that moment, all of our sin is paid for. Past, present, future. There's no sin that you or I will commit that Jesus is going to look and go, oh, I didn't expect that one and cause God to revoke the free gift of eternal life. I think this concept is critical because I I feel that the best foundation for spiritual maturity is actually security in Jesus Christ. That the best foundation for spiritual growth is security rather than fear. And for many of us, we live in a constant state of fear and worry. And as a result, we may never progress beyond the point in our spiritual life where we wonder simply, am I saved? And yet as we look throughout the scripture, we see the scripture exhorting us to continue to maturity under the understanding that we have eternal life as a free gift that cannot be revoked. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see from Scripture, how do we know that our salvation is secure, that eternal life is a free gift that is irrevocable, that God's promises are sure? How do we know that? And then a little bit about why does it matter for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. So as we look at the Scripture, first of all, then how do we know, how can we be sure of our salvation? How can we be sure that it's not something God will revoke? First of all, because we didn't earn it in the first place. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, passage that many of you no doubt have memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, the Greek word for grace is the word charis, uh, from where we get the word charity, for example, in the English language. It is a word That means gift. It is something that is given as an unmerited gift. If I give you a gift that you have not earned, that is completely unmerited, that's grace. That's the definition of grace. So that Romans chapter 5 verse 8 will say, while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us, not after we stopped being sinners, not upon the promise of ceasing sin, but instead while we were yet sinners. Christ died 
for us. Here's what you and I bring to the table when it comes to salvation. We bring an enormous pile of sin. We come to God with debt that we cannot pay because of our sin. What we have earned is eternal condemnation and separation from God in hell. And yet Ephesians tells us you've been saved through faith by grace, by grace. It is a free gift of God, absolutely free gift. And because of that, it is not one that can be revoked. Now, this is a, is a tough concept, I think, for many of us to latch onto and believe because most of our lives, again, uh, do not work that way. Uh, think about all of the insurance policies, for example, that you own. Uh, you go and you pay a fee and you get car insurance, right? And presumably, when you pay that fee, that means if you get in an accident, the insurance company will cover the cost or at least part of the cost. That's in theory how car insurance works. Uh, anybody who's ever tried to file a claim knows that might be theoretical more than real, right? And what happens if you stop paying the premium? the insurance goes away. The coverage goes away. And often that's the way we are tempted to think about eternal life. We say, God has given a gift, but if I don't pay for it, if I don't work hard, if I don't do this, or if I do this, God will take it away. And what the scripture says is, no, it's absolutely a gift that you did not earn. Therefore, it cannot be revoked. You did not pay for it. A few years ago, a couple of Mormon missionaries came to my door and began to present their understanding of salvation. And as we talked, uh, we looked at this passage. I said, what do you think about this passage? For by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And they opened up the Book of Mormon and they showed me a similar passage that said, for by grace, you are saved after all you can do. And I said, wow, that's a direct contradiction to what the Bible says. What do you say about that? And they said, well, here's, here's an illustration. They said, imagine that you are a child and you say to your father, dad, I would like to buy that bicycle over there. It costs $75, but I don't have the money, right? And your dad says, all right, I'll tell you what, you work hard all summer long, wash windows, clean the house, maybe mow a couple lawns, pull weeds, earn everything you can earn. And at the end of the summer, We'll go buy that bicycle. So you work hard, right? You scrub windows, you do everything you can do. And at the end of the summer, you have only earned 50 cents. And you go to the store and, and your dad says, what do you have? You say, I only have 50 cents. And he goes, all right, I'm gonna go ahead and get the bicycle here, 74.50, and I'll take your 50 cents. And they said, that's how salvation works. And my response to that is, no, 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 you don't have 50 cents, right? You don't have anything. You have nothing to bring to the table except for sin. All $75 God gives freely as a gift of his grace. You did not earn it. And because you did not earn it, there is no way at any point in time, before you're saved, after you're saved, that you can pay for it. It's not something that you have earned. Some of you, I'm sure, over the course of the next few months will have birthday parties for your children. And you, you literally will have a party for them and give them gifts and invite their friends over uh, for doing nothing other than being born. 
And in fact, you may think over the course of the last year, uh, my kids have really not done anything to deserve this. In fact, if I gave them what they deserved, it would be an afternoon alone with no companionship, right? Uh, They have not earned anything. And yet you don't sit at the birthday party at the back with a calculator and tally up the cost, do you? And hand them a bill at the end of the party. Because that, a birthday party, is by definition an act of grace. They've done nothing to earn it. And you don't revoke it because you're a parent who loves your child. So our salvation is secure, first of all, because it's not something that we earned or paid for. But secondly, it is something that Jesus completely paid for. Jesus completely paid for the gift of eternal life. As you look at the book of Hebrews, the writer says this, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's Hebrews chapter 10. And what the author of Hebrews is getting at is this. If you were to walk into the temple uh, in Israel during the days of the, the kingdom, you would have seen priests in that temple and they never sat down. You know why they never sat down? Because there was always another offering to be made. There was always another sin for which to be atoned. So they would always be offering animals day after day, moment after moment. The priests took turns because as long as they were on duty, there was no break. They always stood up. They never sat down. But he says, here's what Jesus as our high priest did is he made one offering of himself, one offering for all time. And then he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the father and he pulled up a chair and he sat down. When do you sit down? When the work is done. Yesterday, maybe you mowed the lawn, maybe you cleaned the house, maybe you did some chores around the house. And then what'd you do? You sat down when the work was done. Jesus sits down to say, the work of salvation is totally complete, totally paid for. The book of Colossians puts it this way, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He took the debt of our sin and he nailed it to the cross and said, totally paid. And because it is totally paid, there is no sin you have committed no sin you are committing, no sin you will commit that will cause God to take away the gift of eternal life because it is a gift that Jesus fully paid for. Some time ago, my wife Shannon and I were at a restaurant, Outback or something like that. And uh, as uh, we ate, we were enjoying the food and then we finished the food like you always do and called the waiter over and said, uh, we're ready to pay for our check. And the waiter said, you're check has been paid. Uh, Somebody at the restaurant uh, whom we do not know decided 
to pay for our meal. Must have been somebody that we knew that saw us there that we didn't see. But at the end of the meal, it was all paid. Now, what was interesting about it was whoever paid for the meal didn't know how much we were going to order. They didn't know if we were going to get dessert. They didn't know if we were going to order one of everything on the menu. They had no idea how much we were going to order. They just said, I want to pay for that meal in full. What was also interesting was it had already been paid. Even if we had wanted to, there was no way to pay them back. We had no capacity to pay back our benefactor. The meal was paid for. Now, the question that always emerges in this discussion is, well, can't that understanding of grace be abused? If I know that all of my sin is covered Can't that understanding of grace be abused? Why would I not simply say, look, I'm going to go do whatever I want to do because God in Jesus Christ has already covered all of my sin. And that is a legitimate charge. In fact, several uh, years ago when I was in the college ministry, about once a year, we would take all of our college interns out to dinner and we would cover the meal. And uh, after a few years, I realized I should not tell them that the meal is paid for until after they order Right, Because uh, these young men and women were not accustomed to always eating at a nice restaurant. And if they knew it was covered, sometimes they would order a lot more than they might otherwise order because it's free. So the question emerges, isn't grace open to that same kind of charge? If I know it's paid for, why would I not just go live like crazy and sin as much as I can? And as you read the book of Romans, in fact, Paul deals with that objection. Why not just go on sinning so that grace will increase and grace will abound? And what he says is, no, you have to realize that in Jesus Christ, you have died to sin. Jesus died and rose again to save you from sin. Sin leads to death. Why in the world would you want to go back to something that kills you? There are serious consequences. But those consequences, biblically, are not a loss of eternal life. They are loss of fellowship with God. They are loss, perhaps, of relationship with others. And even as you read through the book of Hebrews, it seems clear that it might even result in loss of your life in a physical sense. But eternal life is a free gift, fully paid for by Jesus, that cannot be revoked. And so we did not earn it. Jesus paid for it in full. Thirdly, God guards it. God himself guards our salvation so that no one can take it away. A couple of passages in that regard. Romans chapter eight. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's Elect, And then further down in the same chapter, he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a pretty comprehensive statement. Paul says, nothing at all can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect because Jesus died for sin and rose again. So any charges do not stick to the one who is trusted in Jesus Christ. 
because salvation is totally paid for and God guards our salvation. He has promised to carry it through. John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. He says, God is so great and strong that when he promises eternal life, not the devil, not the world, not the forces of hell itself, and no sin can snatch the one that he loves out of his hand. I I, I was interested earlier as I was preparing this message in what is the most secure location in the United States. And you may have guesses about that. You may think, well, it's the White House, whatever it may be. Turns out the most secure location in the United States, and maybe on earth, some people say, is Fort Knox. Uh, Fort Knox is where the United States holds its supply of gold bullion, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of gold. And as I read about Fort Knox, here's what I read. Uh, The gold is protected by an underground vault with a 22-ton blast-proof door. Uh, cameras everywhere, obviously, uh, machine gun turrets, uh, multiple guards, several fences, a combination on that vault that no one person knows in its entirety. Secondary vaults, maybe even lasers. Uh, it's protected by Apache helicopters that can get there at a moment's notice. And as a last case resort, 30,000 soldiers that are on call if someone tries to break in. Bottom line, you're not getting the gold. You're not breaking it. And as I thought about that, I I couldn't help but think, Jesus says that the security that we have in God is greater than the security of that gold in Fort Knox. God is all-powerful, all-wise. He knows everything you're thinking, everything you've done, everything you will do. And he says, I guard your salvation because it was a freely given gift that I offer on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we didn't earn it. Jesus paid for all of it. God guards it. And then fourthly, the Spirit guarantees it. Spirit guarantees it. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What is Paul saying? When you trusted in Jesus Christ, something fundamentally changed about you. And that is that the Spirit of God entered into your heart and acts as a seal It used to be that kings, when they sent a letter, would place a wax seal around the opening to that letter or scroll, and that wax seal would say, this came from me. It is my letter that I am sending. And what Paul says is that when you trusted in Jesus Christ, God gave the Holy Spirit who acts as a seal upon your heart. God stamps you with that seal and says, he is mine. She is mine. And you have fundamentally changed so that it is an irrevocable gift of God. Uh, those of you who have gone through major stages 
in your life. Know that sometimes things change that never go back to the way they were, right? So if you get married, no matter what else happens in your life, you have undergone a shift in which you will never quite be the same, right? Once you have children, those of you who have kids know that something changes about the way your world is ordered and the way you think. There is never again a mind that doesn't think about, worry about, focus on those kids. No matter what else happens, you have undergone a fundamental shift in the way that you see your identity. College students who leave home and go to college find that they can't ever really go back and be the same. I still remember that when my older brother first went off to college and he left and my dad said, it'll never be quite the same when he comes home again. I didn't really understand that until I went away and came back. And you realize that something has shifted that cannot be reversed. What Paul is saying about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives and hearts is that something has changed in us that cannot be reversed. It's why 2 Corinthians 5 says you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You have been transformed into something that you were not previously if you trusted in Jesus Christ. It is an irreversible change. One that can't be undone. And so the Holy Spirit seals us. All through the New Testament, the Scripture makes it plain that the promises of God are irrevocable. Perhaps uh, the most memorable human analogy that we see in the scriptures also comes from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. A marriage is intended to be a representation of the way that Christ loves his church. Now, we all know that in real life, people don't always keep those promises that they make, but those promises to stay together for better or worse, rich or poor, sickness or health, till death do us part. Those promises are a faint reflection of the way that God loves us. And often the scripture will argue from the lesser to the greater to say if a human promise is intended to be permanent, how much more is the love of God, the promise of God, a permanent promise? We did not earn it. Jesus paid for it. God guards it. And the Spirit guarantees that there is no way to lose what God has given freely. That's the doctrine of eternal security. And of course, like we mentioned at the beginning, the question we may have then is, uh, why does this matter? Why does it matter if our salvation is secure? Especially if I say, look, I want to go ahead and please God anyway. I want to serve God anyway, because that's the appropriate response to eternal life. Why does it matter that my salvation is secure? Here's why. And we mentioned this at the beginning. Security is the best foundation for spiritual growth. Security is the best foundation for spiritual growth. That's why in Hebrews 5 and 6, even in the context of warning against sin, the author will say, look, let's press on to maturity. Let's not go back and lay this foundation again about washings and eternal life. Let's press on to maturity to deeper things. And the way we do that is when we are secure in our understanding that God loves us, Jesus died for us, and we have eternal life that cannot be taken away. Again, if we come back to the marriage illustration, 
Is it a freeing and liberating way to live in a marriage if every time I leave a towel on the floor, my wife says, I'm leaving. I've told you six times, that towel doesn't go there. I'm out. Look like you've put on a little bit of weight around the middle. I might go away. That would be a marriage of fear, paralysis, and not a marriage of love. Not one in which you would say, I want to draw closer to this person because I love them. How do marriages thrive? In a context of security. Where one spouse says to another, no matter what happens, I'm here. Better or worse, sickness and health. Till death do us part. It creates an environment of trust and security in which you say, I want to move closer to that person. Same concept applies with our father and us because, again, the same concept applies between you and your own children. How do you motivate your kids to clean their room? Do you walk in and say, clean the room or move to the Holiday Inn? I hope not. Would that create an environment of trust? Would it create an environment in which your kids say, I want to know you, to have a relationship in which I learn to obey, learn to trust? No, it would create an environment of fear and terror. The best foundation for spiritual growth is eternal security in which we say God has given something freely we could never earn. And the response to that gift is, I love him. I want to worship him. I want to obey him. Even though in my flesh I fail, even though at times I sin, I want to serve the type of God who would promise me eternal life as a free gift by the death and resurrection of Jesus a life that can never be revoked because of something I may do. Because the promise doesn't hinge on me. The promise is rooted in the character and power of God. As we think about our relationship with God and how we encourage others toward a relationship with God, I'm convinced from looking at the scriptures that the best approach is not to dangle the possibility of loss of salvation, but instead to look at the scripture and say, God loves you. He has promised eternal life that will never go away. He is a God of security, a God whose promises can be trusted, a God who has placed his spirit in you. And because of that security now, you have the freedom to obey him. Because what is in our best interest and what we're made for is not sin, but for knowing and serving God. So that security is the best foundation for growth. That's why John, in the book of 1 John, tells us that he wrote the book so that we may know that we have eternal life. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sin and rose again, you have life that cannot be revoked because God protects it. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life, 
the message of the scripture is that this morning you can know, you can walk out of here knowing that you have a relationship with God that will last into eternity. You can walk out of the room no longer fearing hell, no longer fearing death because God gave Jesus while we were yet sinners to die for us so we can have life that never ends. For those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, then I, I would exhort every person not only to lay hold of the promises of God and to say what God has promised cannot be revoked and then press on to maturity, but as we proclaim the good news. Never mingle the gospel of Jesus Christ with a message that you have to earn God's favor. Always proclaim that the good news is despite the fact that we have violated God's standards. While we were sinners, Jesus died for us to redeem us from sin and to draw us back to God so that we can know him for eternity and so we can live out the purposes he has for us to represent and reflect him on the earth out of love and out of gratitude and out of joy rather than out of fear and terror. That's the good news of the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a promise that cannot be taken away because of the character of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. We praise you because you have given us eternal life that cannot be revoked, taken away, or removed. We praise you that there is no power in heaven or on earth or even in hell itself that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I pray for those who came in this morning who wonder if you still love them, if you still accept them, I pray provide for them an assurance that is rooted not in what they do, but in the work of Jesus Christ. And I pray we would continually turn our hearts and minds back to the work of Jesus Christ to remind us that your gifts and your calling are irrevocable. You never turn your back on your people. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray allow us to trust you more and obey you faithfully as we walk through this week. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.